Hi, this is Tiffany Bova. Welcome to a reload of the What's Next podcast. This is one of my favorite episodes, and I always like to bring those ones back that had a huge impact, not only on myself, but I got a lot of feedback from listeners just like you. I hope you enjoy this week's reload of the What's Next podcast. Welcome to the What's Next podcast, where I have the absolute pleasure of welcoming Adam Kingle to the show today. He is the adjunct faculty at Ashridge Holt International Business School. He was the regional managing director of Europe for Duke Corporate Education and the executive director of thought leadership and learning solutions for London Business School. Adam leverages his research on the work and leadership paradigms of Generation Y to shine a light on the future of business for individuals and organizations, plus a number of other topics. But his book, Next Generation Leadership, was just published this year in 2020, and it delves into how companies can ensure young talent will thrive within organizations. Adam, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me. Well, it's just a pleasure. You know, I love when uh, past guests introduce me to new guests that have a book that just came out around a topic that I'm really excited about. So I'm just interested in hearing everything you have to say, but I cannot start our podcast without the famous, the award-winning in our own competition, Bullish and Bearish. So Bullish is- I am primed and ready. You are ready, right? Bullish is you're for it. Bearish is you are against it. Are you ready? Yes. All right. Somebody from Gen Y will become the youngest president of the United States. Bullish or bearish? Bullish. Oh, I can't wait to talk about that one. All right, the next one. Uh, This is a little fun. So virtual reality amusement parks. Bullish. Oh, you know, I'm getting soft in my old age. Okay, (laughs) all right. The next one, third. Artificial intelligence will become the new voiceovers on TV commercials. Good one. Uh, bearish. All right. So a little fun fact, Adam is famous for his voiceovers. Um, so what was the voiceover you were on that people might've heard you? Uh, well, years ago, they may have heard a Guinness commercial that involved livestock and I would have played the part of the pig. Everyone remembers that. Of course. I I think so. They immediately went back there. (laughs) It became a gif. I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Adam. So let's dive right into this because, you know, you obviously cover so many topics in both your academia, you know, life that you are out teaching, but also in your own practicing life. And so I'd love to just get a quick little synopsis of what led you to writing this book uh, about um, sort of this new generation of leadership, because I'm sure it was something that all of a sudden you went, wow, this is really changing. So I'd love to hear that journey for you. Yeah, no, absolutely. It started over 10 years ago when I was directing uh, an open enrollment executive education program at London Business School called the Emerging Leaders Program. So this was for high potentials uh, that were leading others or about to lead teams for the first time. So what was fascinating about this group was not only that they were all millennials or Gen Ys, but by virtue of being on this program, right, and nominated and paid for by their by their companies, they clearly were a more accurate um, 
indicator of the leaders of the future, right? The, these are our CEOs of the future. And they were very global. They came from 44 different countries over about five years. And what I observed as I was talking to them is they had very different views about work and life and work life, careers, leadership, it's you name it, but also their companies and their sponsors, their HR departments were saying, yeah, we, we don't get these people. <laughs> they, do, they don't seem to approach business and what it means to be an employee the way other you know, generations in our workforce do. Um, so... You know, in addition to just directing this program and try to create a successful program, I thought, you know, this is a wonderful uh, group to research. So I surveyed them over five years and then followed up with a number of them to do interviews, then took that insight and I started interviewing companies and the HR directors, et cetera, uh, just to get a sense of, you know, what's going on here. The first hypothesis that I wanted to challenge is it's just life stage, right? That's often when the people who would poo-poo generational theory say, yeah, they say that now, but as soon as they have kids, they're going to change, etc. Um, so I wanted to know if these, if these paradigms were in fact fundamentally different because of course the oldest section of our Gen Ys are married, do have kids, you know, they're in their thirties, they're managers in their own right now. And I discovered that those paradigms are, are in fact different and, and are dramatically different from at least the two generations above them, the Gen Xs and, and the baby boomers. Second point was, so how do you manage them more effectively? Because employers were also telling me that they were finding loyalty among this generation to be shockingly low, right? Like they were leaving with surprising rapidity, uh, you know, one, sort of hopping from job to job. And the third point that I was trying to figure out was, if those paradigms are indeed different, then when they assume leadership positions in their own right, when they join the C-suite of our organization, then surely if they're going to lead those organizations in the way they wished to have been led over the decades. Then surely those organizations are going to evolve in sudden, dramatically different ways. Um, so I think if you can understand true paradigms of Gen Y, then you are gaining an insight into the future of work. Because I think we're at an inflection point now where we are experiencing an evolution or more accurately a revolution in capitalism and how it's practiced and what is the role of business and what are the roles of leaders in business. And there's no better way to identify the, what that future looks like than to talk to our future leaders. Um, so it was about eight to 10 years of that, the research, um, doing lots of keynote speeches on the topic as well, which was great in order to sense check what I was saying and to BS check what I was finding. Uh, and then a year of writing, a year of editing, and finally the baby has been born and is, and is now in the world. Yeah, and, and I find it's so for those listening, right, when we talk about Gen Y, also known as millennials, it's 1980 to 1994, right? I think. Is that? Right? Uh, I, I say I, a little bit different. I, I, I think it's roughly 19, yeah, 1980 to 82 to even 2000, 2004. Yeah, it's oh, usually okay. most generations are about 20 year periods, but it's not exact. So you, you, interestingly, when you look at generations and, and where their birth years are defined, they don't fall in precisely the same span or number of years. That's because, of course, a new generation occurs when the context in which they were raised changes. And sometimes that happens sooner and sometimes that happens later. 
Um, but if you look at, um, to be to be very pedantic for a moment, Strauss and Howe, two American writers who talk who've written a lot about generations and have looked at hundreds of years of generations, I think they've defined Gen Y as 1982 to 2004 is as their birth years. Uh, and, you know, and, and because after that, then then the paradigms have changed. But Gen well, it's Y is like the, gen- the it's it's sort of like the industrial revolutions. It's the revolutions, right? Like some yes. are longer, shorter, right? We're in the fourth Precisely. now, according to the World Economic Forum. And we could be rapidly approaching the fifth, where the last one was well over a hundred years, right? So yeah, so yeah. so good to frame that out. And and you know, there's there's a a thought out there that this is the first time that we have five, and you could argue maybe five and a half or six generations of workers working at the same time. Yep, that's and right. And, and that, that that alone go, is interesting, <laughs> right? And and you know, I often say that because I. You know, I talk about innovation and transformation as you do, and uh, I'm always paying attention to it. And and I think people miss the subtlety behind the challenges of managing, you know, five generations. And there was a, a recent post I did on on Twitter that um, showed that uh, the average age of a Fortune 500 and an S and P 500 CEO, new hire CEO has actually gone up 15 years over the last 15 years, mm-hmm. and it's close to 60. So wow. you then say, right, that you have that generation managing this generation, you know, Gen Ys, sometimes in high positions or management, middle management, right, and then the actual, you know, frontline individual contributors. And and I'm guessing that people that are listening are like, you know, I'm either Gen Y, which is possible, right? Or I'm managing Gen Y, or, you know, I I uh, see it happening sort of rampant in my own organization. And so any thoughts on what that means in the dynamic of teams and how to manage and how to lead? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, a couple things. So one of the most interesting um, insights that I gained from the research is that Gen Ys on the whole... And I, and I should stress, right, that when you're talking about generations, you're also generalizing. So, of course, there are going to be exceptions to this. But what I found is Gen Ys, on the whole, feel a greater affinity or engagement or loyalty, whatever term you want to use, for their immediate team versus their employer. So the whole concept of employer branding is becoming a very difficult one uh, to to hang on to in terms of what its advantages are. Well, so wait, uh, so let, me, we, let me just, let me just highlight that because I'm sorry yeah. to interrupt. Right. But that's a big one. When I heard you say that, right. That, that Gen Y's are more loyal to the team, yes. not the company. And so often people will say, you know, people don't leave companies, they leave managers, you know, that yeah. famous quote, right. Yeah. Well, now it's, is, is the reverse of that coin people stay for teams, not companies. <laughs> yes, that, that's exactly what I found. Um, and, and so that has huge implications then for how you think about employee engagement, loyalty, dynamics. So manager for, for managers and team leaders have got to think really hard about how they create community on a much more micro level than they used to. You know, I think it used to be about these huge town halls and, you know, articulate some compelling values and slap them up on the elevators and, you know, get everyone to think about this company and what we stand for. But actually, you know, I think there's a much more intimate block and tackle 
that's happening, where people are, are evaluating how much they want to stay in a given work environment based on the one-to-one relationships they're having with the people around them. And a really good symptom of that, so why do we know that's true? I just read a fascinating uh, piece of research also that showed what is the number one thing that Gen Ys are, are, are asking for or seeking when they're interviewing for a job. Now, in my day, I'm a Gen X. It was it was basic questions that you would expect, like what's the salary, what's what's the promotion opportunity, explain the career ladder to me, tell, maybe tell me a little bit about the pension, uh, though even that was declining in, in in my day when I was my generation was coming out of university. But today, for Gen Y, it's where am I going to sit, and who are the people who are immediately sitting around me? That's fascinating to me. Also, when you think about how often does that happen. How often would an HR director say, okay, you know, thanks for the interview we just had, Mr. or Mrs. Recruit. Let's come on over and let me show you that if we were to offer you a position, where you'd sit and who would be around you, who would your, who would your team be? Uh, so, you know, I think employers are missing a really easy trick there if they're not doing that. And I would argue most of them are not doing that. Because, of course, that costs very little to, to, to do um, and also indicates, uh, has implications in relation to team development, for example. I, I come from the world of executive development, executive education, and that was often done on a one-to-one level, right? Where a company says, let's identify our top, say, 20 people in all these different countries and functions, and we'll send them on these programs with these uh, elite business schools, et cetera, et cetera. And thinking that part of the benefit of that is their, in, their engagement and retention in the organization, because it was seen as a reward, as a benefit. But if, if, if we still seek that benefit, of retention, then maybe we have to think about creating development uh, opportunities that are for a team, an, an, an existing team, um, so that they can grow together, develop together, adhere together, develop even closer relationships. So it's a different way, too, to think about how, um, how development happens, team development versus corporate development, team development versus executive development, which um, a lot of companies are still far behind on. Um, because also we, you know, we have this, this greater issue. And that is that it is indeed true that Gen Y is less loyal, um, that they change jobs frequently. Um, in fact, I'm finding that there are 90% of Gen Ys, um, and these are high potential Gen Ys, right? These are people who companies want to keep that are their leaders of the future. But 90% of those are telling me they are probably thinking when they join a company that they're going to leave within five years. So they're not thinking long-term. They're not thinking long haul, like I'm here for, you know, for life. The, the old paradigm of the IBM company man is pretty much dead concept for Gen Y. Well, um, but, what I, but what was interesting in that is it isn't that they want, well, there's two things, right? I think that the um, tenure of them staying at a job is potentially getting shorter. But the reasons that they're leaving are not, are, sometimes it's just really, I, I want experience and I want to go learn. And so you have this very unique sort of twist on that, that should organizations, should companies let these Gen Ys go and boomerang yeah. back in three to five years when they've gathered all that experience, especially if they really like the company, let, like go let them get experience, kind of, you know, the whole thing, like hire really smart people and, you know, every day give them a reason to want to be here. But if they don't want to be here, like let them go, but they will come back. That's right. 
Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Um, yeah, you there 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 are a few things you can do to sort of convince them you know, to stay with you for life. Um, and of course, I often when I share this information with HR directors, I have to preface it by saying, and you know what? And I apologize for saying this. It's kind of your fault. I don't mean that person, you know, personally, but it's corporations' fault. They've you know all the golden handcuffs of days gone by are gone. Pensions have converted from defined benefit final salary to defined contribution pension pots that people can carry with them anywhere. Um, so we just structurally, we're giving people fewer reasons to stay. So if we say, oh, they're less loyal, well, companies also have cut a lot of the ties that used to bind. And you're absolutely right. If you know, if 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 they're gonna if people are gonna leave. They're going to become customers and gain more insight about that. They're going to gain information about the market. They might join a competitor, and that's really interesting intelligence. They're going to go out and they're going to gain leadership experience, maybe be, get management development from other employers. And then they're going to come back, and you're going to get all those benefits, and you didn't have to pay for it. Well, that's kind of cool. But you do have to think differently then about what how you develop your talent. And part of that might be go out in the world, you know? grow up to with other um, firms and maybe on your own and and then come back. And maybe we get multiple, you know, multiple bites of that talent cherry. Uh, and that's not necessarily a bad thing because, of course, you know, one of the main challenges that a lot of companies tell me they struggle with is innovation, right? We don't seem to be very innovative. We seem to be very insular. We seem to be inward thinking. Well, this is a great way to expand the aperture of your view of the outside world is have a more fluid um, dynamic where your talent is coming and going. But you have to encourage that. You have to exit people well, you know, and, and make sure you've communicated to them that you want them to come back and hopefully soon. But again, too many companies ruin that opportunity by saying, oh, you resign. Okay. You know, leave your keys and your swipe card on the desk. Give me your laptop and don't let the door hit your ass on the way out. Right. And of course, they're not going to come back if you treat them that way. If you make if you make their exiting feel like a sort of betrayal. Yeah, and I think you know I would tell you that um, you know as a sort of little fun tidbit is that we actually we have a term uh, internally. I work at Salesforce called like he's a boomerang or she's a boomerang. Like yeah. left came back. Um, and, and I think also it says a lot about, you know, early in my career in my, I was in my thirties, right? So let's call it that I was a Gen Y back then, you know, I was in mm -hmm. my thirties, right? And mm -hmm. um, I changed jobs every 18 months and I was considered at the time, because this was 20 years ago, that I was a higher risk. And, yeah. you know, every 18 months I was changing jobs. And yeah. because I was in the role of sales that's really easy black white. You either hit your number or you didn't. I don't care how often you left. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, so selfishly, right. they're like, you know, if you're a seller and and back then it was like, show me your W-2, you know, how much did you earn? Mm. Like you're hired, right? It was fairly basic. Um, and and But no one really ever dug into, well, why? Mm -hmm. You know, why were you leaving? Because in, in my particular role, it was like, you're a high powered seller. Like we want you to come work. Right. So, yeah. but the reason was I went to my employer and said, Hey, you know, I want a little bit more. I was an individual contributor. Can I be a lead? Can I have a team? Can I take over more responsibility? Can I, and it wasn't about uh, title. It was more about, I had career aspirations and I wanted to learn more that I, I didn't want to yes. just quote unquote, have a individual contributing seller role. And I always went to my employer and they kind of gave me the obligatory, Oh, 
we don't have anything right now, but we value you. You know, we don't want yeah. to lose you. Like <laughs> give us 30, 60, 90 days and we'll come back with a plan. You know, the day would go by and, you know, I'd go in and go, Hey, did you take a chance? Yeah. You know, we don't really have anything for you right now. And, you know, but I don't want you to feel like we're not interested. And I would end up leaving because I yeah. wanted that sort of career progression. And so I changed jobs absolutely for that more responsibility, more responsibility, more responsibility. And with that came obviously more salary and more opportunity and all of that. But over the course of my thirties, I changed jobs, I think five times. And so back then that was risk. Now, do you think that it is more viewed as gaining experience and people, uh, you know, from a recruitment standpoint, aren't, aren't saying you're a risky hire. And to yeah. your point, we're going to take that adv advantage of that skill set while we can have them, as long as we can have them, knowing that it may be shorter than we would like. Yeah, that's a great question. Well, let me put it this way. I, I speak a lot to HR directors, uh, of course, and, and given my, my role or my job. But what, what, what they're telling me is even if we don't see that you know, number of employers as a big plus, we can't see it as a negative because we don't see enough CVs of people who have been with one employer long enough, right? So if we want to hire top talent, we have to overlook the frequent changing of employers. We don't have a choice anymore because that is the new normal. Um, now, some HR directors who I think are more forward-looking are saying, yeah, that could be an advantage. This gives me diversity of thinking, uh, you know, more perspectives, uh, accelerated leadership, et cetera. Um, but you know, if 90% of Gen Ys are changing jobs every two years, uh, which 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 is by the way the case, you know, you sort of have to get on board with that, right? <laughs> Otherwise, if you're if if you make that a disqualifier, you don't have enough talent in your potential pipeline to recruit from. Um, but your the way that you behaved in your 30s was totally the way that Gen Y treats it today. Um, you know, of the top three things that Gen Ys say they look for in an employer, one of those is development opportunities. But what's interesting here is there's semantic discord. When Gen Y say development opportunities, that's exactly what they mean, literally that. You know, give me more senior responsibility. Let me, you know, give me a mentor. Let me do a, a, a bigger project, work with a, a, a higher volume client or, you know, give me a bigger role. But it isn't always a promotion. But when their managers or their HR directors here give me a development opportunity, much as, as like just as what you asked of your employers, they they were they're hearing that as promotion. Oh, you want a promotion? Yeah, but we only have seven layers in the company, you know, so we can't promote someone every two years. We just don't have enough layers, so they don't they don't do anything, and then they're surprised when the person leaves. Um, so, and of course, a lot of those development opportunities they listed, shadowing, mentoring, more senior project, they don't cost anything. Um, it's just a matter of being development focused about your people and saying, if you're with us, part of our responsibility is to create an environment where you can grow. Um, again, some HR departments are forward thinking about this and some still have quite a long way to go. Well, you know, the other thing I'd also say, and you're in education and I've had, you know, from Roger Martin on to you, to, I mean, I've had all kinds of very high powered academics. And when talking about, you know, this entire thought of the future of work, but I think it would lend itself and I'd be interested in your opinion in the future of education as well, because 
you know, I can say for me personally, like I'm a listen visual learner, not a read learner. So school was not my forte. Like I don't have my MBA. Um, and, and it wasn't that I didn't want my MBA. It's that I knew that at the time that was not the way I learned. And so I went back for an executive uh, development class at Wharton, but it was a very hands-on lab, you know, exercises, eight weeks kind of a, where it wasn't, right. let's read and come back and test. And it wasn't that kind of thing. And so I, I thrived in that. But thinking about it from a education standpoint, even training of employees, you know, you're right in the front lines of education today. Like, how do you think that has to change as generations now are far more digital, far more collaborative, uh, far more social, uh, you know, they're far more video driven, quick videos. You know, you could even say, you know, TikTok eight seconds. I mean, we're really getting fast. And so, you know, how do you change education to get people prepared for working? Yeah. Well, first, I think um, in relation to your description of your uh, executive education experience with Wharton, I think overall education has to be more, have that more element of application to it, um, particularly in business. Um, you know, we you can't afford, I don't think an MBA program anymore can afford to have their graduates do two years of just theory frameworks right. and case studies. Um, they're not going to be ready for the workforce if that's if that's what the the pedagogy entails. Um, so uh, at least in terms of business schools, uh, even the degree programs have got to feel more like executive education programs. Uh, it's, that that's one point. Second point is that you're right with you know ubiquity of dig, of digitization. Um, more and more, there's increasing demand for bite-sized learning virtual learning, digital learning. And here I'm a bit conflicted because I agree that there's a place for that and that's only going to increase. But it depends what you want that learning to achieve because sure, I can watch a short video, get a bite-sized nugget and I will learn something, right? So I will intellectually you know, acquire something. But what I find is the most effective executive education that I've been involved in have been about changing behaviors and habits. And I have yet to see a virtual or digital solution that does that as effectively or more effectively than a face-to-face -face engagement where you actually can practice the behaviors so that you A, you've, you've actually done it, B, you've increased your confidence that you actually can do it. So then C, you don't completely screw it up in a live fire exercise the first time you're back in the office. Now that will change, right? I mean, you mentioned early on when we were doing bullish and bearish virtual reality. So the, as that as that becomes more, as that becomes better, as that becomes cheaper, then you will be able to have virtual executive education that allows participants to practice behaviors and not all be co-located. We're not quite there yet, but we're not far away from it. So that will be really, it's a really interesting time uh, to be in adult education. Well, but I think the educational institutions themselves, I mean, they almost have to self-disrupt. I mean, if you think back yeah. in time, right, it was, we're going to do remote learning like Phoenix University in the US, right? It's like, you know, there's hundreds of thousands of people that take MBA classes and never show up to a, to a actual classroom until, except for certain times. And that was sort of poo-pooed, you know, like, oh no, that's <laughs> not good enough, right? Right. And then, right. and then it was now this sort of different kind of learning, like how do you actually weave in video, classroom, you know, uh, projects, you know, labs, like everything so that 
everybody gets an opportunity to learn and shine in their way of learning. Right. And, right. you know, and, and Dan Pink did a fantastic book on the book when on even times of day that you test students, like the same mm. student can take a test at nine in the morning or three in the afternoon, and they will do markedly different. And even yeah. kids who are maybe, you know, not as astute on a particular topic may do better in certain times than somebody who is, uh, you know, quote unquote, smarter, gets better grades. Uh, I say smarter loosely, right? That's in mm -hmm. air quotes, mm -hmm. right? Um, we'll test the same if time of day. And so there's all these things that go into this. And I'm, I'm excited to see, because I think that, you know, educating the next generation of leaders has to look very different than this generation of leaders. Yes. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And I think there's, there's certainly going to be more personalization, um, more contextualization, uh, right? Because I think leadership is contextual. You know, what leadership looks like if you're running a manufacturing plant, you know, making automobiles in Japan looks very different from if you're a leader, meaning like you're leading a, a platoon in a conflict zone, you know, um, uh, in some part of the world. So, uh, you know, and, and, and before I think the way like leadership, for example, was taught was much more generic. Um, and more and more companies I think are, are finding that they've got to figure out what leadership means for them, then develop their people in terms of that, that developing that leadership act. That's quite interesting. Um, that leadership will look different and be taught differently and be practiced differently from place to place. Because when I was, you know, when I was growing up, leadership was much more a generic, but b it was just an act of imitation. You know, like oh, re if you want to be a leader, read Jack Welch's book and be Jack Welch. Well, <laughs> you know, that that might work for GE, and that might have only worked for GE in a particular period of time. Um, and now we're kind of waking up to that fact and growing up. To that just as for example finance right find there's kind of one way to practice finance but now every business school also teaches islamic finance which looks very different um, because if you're going to run a bank for example in dubai you're going to have to know that um, and a generic corporate finance course is not going to teach you everything you need to know absolutely well this has just been super interesting for me i hope that our listeners have enjoyed it as much as i have but any final thoughts of you know, where people can, you know, keep in touch with what work you have going on and, uh, you know, ways that they can dig more into some of this, this fantastic research that you've done. Yeah, well, certainly. Well, it's all encapsulated in, in my book, Next Generation Leadership. Um, I was fortunate that it was published by HarperCollins, which means it's probably, you know, sold everywhere in good uh, physical and online bookstores near you. I have a website, adamkingle.com. Um, uh, a D A M K I N G L. Uh, but I think I would just also leave with this, with this thought. I think the, the most interesting thing that I discovered was at the very end of the journey. And that was that, yeah, I mentioned that I think we're at an inflection point of work and what work means. And this is one of those moments where the, funny enough, the youngest people in our workforce are showing us what work might be like or what more accurately it could be like in a way that's more fulfilling versus transactional. I think for many decades, humanity has struggled with the question of, do I live to work or work to live? I think a lot of the ways that Gen Ys 
are trying to work, sometimes struggling to do so, sometimes you know, forming their own way and showing us how to do so, they're showing us that work life itself can be a life worth living. And I think that's incredibly interesting and exciting and just requires us to be humble and observant of what they're doing and have some rich conversations. Um, and, uh, and, and work can maybe become something different from how it's been practiced throughout the 20th century. For me, that's not a threat. I'm a great optimist about what that might look like. Well, this has been fantastic, Adam. Thank you so much for joining us today on the What's Next podcast. I appreciate all your candid and very interesting insights around Gen Y, as well as everything else. But thank you again for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. This was great fun. How much fun to have Adam on the What's Next podcast today. It was very fascinating to hear sort of what Gen Y thinks. And so for anybody out there who's a manager, a leader, a CEO, a startup, an entrepreneur, whatever you might be, understanding how best to navigate five generation of workers is absolutely critical to your long-term success. How do you recruit, manage, enable, train, retain, and potentially even lose and rehire the talent you're now hiring and investing in is is just absolutely should be at the forefront of what you're thinking about because without your people without happy employees you just won't have happy customers so i hope you've enjoyed this episode of the what's next podcast please subscribe leave some feedback rate the show tell your friends but i look forward to having you join me back here again next time have a great day